While the American Society of Hematology meeting seems to harbor the greatest treasure trove of new research reports in hematologic oncology, ASCO also always includes important data sets, and Dr. John Leonard gave his take on a number of these, beginning with a study of elderly patients with diffuse large-cell lymphoma evaluating dose-dense chemoimmunotherapy. Diffuse large-cell lymphoma remains a challenge, particularly in elderly patients, and the standard therapy in the United States really has been our chop on the 21-day cycle. In Germany, before rituximab came along, they really switched over to the CHOP-14 schedule, giving CHOP on the every 14-day cycle, and subsequently moved on to use our CHOP-14. The point of the study that was presented by Freundschu and colleagues at ASCO really focuses on trying to improve outcomes further beyond RCHOP14 in older patients with diffuse large cell lymphoma. And what they did in this study was they cited some data that focused on the fact that when we use rituximab with CHOP and kind of the standard dose and schedule, It takes some time when you start off giving the rituximab to get rituximab to optimal or what are felt to be optimal levels, at least by these investigators. And so they really looked at the idea of using, and this was a phase two trial in older patients, using a denser regimen, and they call this dense R-CHOPs or denser R-CHOP in older patients. And the idea here is that they really front-loaded with extra doses of rituximab when patients started the R-CHOP, the idea being that they could get higher rituximab levels and therefore potentially improve outcomes. And so this was a single-arm study. They basically showed that you can give R-CHOP with a front-loaded approach. They did find in their early set of patients that they had more toxicity. In fact, they had some infectious toxicity and some toxicity of the lungs relating to this. But they then moved on to treat patients with antiviral and antineumocystis prophylaxis and went on and treated an entire cohort of patients, about 100 patients, in a phase 2 fashion with this denser RCHOP regimen. And with this prophylactic regimen, the treatment was generally pretty well tolerated. And what they found, they made some historical comparisons to their kind of standard RCHOP 14 schedule, and they had some data that suggested that in the higher-risk international prognostic index groups, that patients did better with respect to progression-free and event-free survival. And so I think the bottom line of this study, the jury is still out. I don't think that we're ready to be using this denser rituximab plus CHOP-14 regimen. We're still sorting out, and the GILA is doing a study of RCHOP-14 versus RCHOP-21. But it raises the idea that we might be able to potentially improve outcomes by using a more intensive rituximab-containing regimen with additional doses early in the course. But again, I think it's going to take some time and ultimately randomized trials before this is what we're standardly using. Let's talk about the paper looking at lenalidomide and relapsed refractory aggressive non-Hodgkin's disease. So I think that lenalidomide is one of the more interesting drugs under evaluation in various forms of lymphoma. There were data presented at ASCO looking at diffuse large cell lymphoma, but we've seen data at ASH and at other meetings and other venues. Lenalidomide that you all are familiar with through its activity in multiple myeloma and in myelodysplasia has been looked at largely in phase two trials in just about every type of lymphoma. And at this point, we have evidence that there's activity in follicular lymphoma. There's evidence of activity in small lymphocytic lymphoma and CLL. There's activity in mantle cell lymphoma. 
and some smaller studies in other lymphoma subtypes. And so what Myron Chutchman and colleagues presented at ASCO was really a international kind of confirmatory study, a phase two larger trial than the previous experience that was out there, a phase two trial looking at lenalidomide as a single agent in patients with relapsed or refractory aggressive lymphoma. And in this study, patients largely had diffuse large cell lymphoma as their histology. There were also a substantial proportion of mantle cell lymphoma patients in this trial and a smattering of a few other subtypes. And the bottom line of the study is that by giving lenalidomide as a single agent in the standard 25 milligrams per day, three weeks on, one week off, the overall response rate in this population of patients that was largely, as you would imagine, in recurrent large cell and mantle cell, a fairly poor prognostic group of patients, the overall response rate was 29% in this study. They were mostly PRs. And the response rates were a little bit higher in mantle cell lymphoma, a little lower in large cell lymphoma, but essentially confirming the prior experience that lenalidomide is an active drug in these aggressive lymphoma subtypes. And so I think this is certainly encouraging that this agent, again, its activity is being confirmed in a larger study. And I think it's really one of the drugs that's obviously available for other malignancies. The principal toxicity that you're familiar with really is largely hematologic from its use in other settings as well. But basically, I think this is a drug that has activity not only in aggressive lymphoma, but other histologies. And I think we're going to see a whole host of studies coming along, looking at it in combination with rituximab as a maintenance treatment after chemotherapy. And I think this is certainly encouraging and I think reflects the fact that this is a drug that we'll be seeing more and more of and probably be integrating into some of our standard lymphoma regimens in the future. Do you see it being integrated into upfront initial management? Well, one of the challenges with lenalidomide is the fact that it is myelosuppressive. And so if you're giving a patient chemotherapy, obviously giving another drug with an overlapping toxicity is going to be a challenge. I suspect that there are doses that could potentially be concurrently given with chemotherapy. But I think at this point, much of the effort with lenalidomide is going to be either focused on combining it with non-myelosuppressive agents or regimens such as with rituximab or using it as kind of a maintenance strategy after, say, CHOP rituximab, giving a maintenance lenalidomide therapy to try to keep people in remission longer. What do we know about rituximab plus lenalidomide? So there are a number of studies that are looking at this. The mechanism of action of lenalidomide, there's a long list of how it could be working in lymphoma, just as the issues of how it's working in myelodysplasia and myeloma, whether they're direct effects against the tumor cells, whether they affect the microenvironment, angiogenesis, or immunologic function and augmenting an immune response. All of those are putative mechanisms of action of lenalidomide in a variety of different malignancies. I would say that there are data and there are preclinical models suggesting that adding lenalidomide to rituximab can enhance natural killer cell activity and other immune effects. And there are studies that are looking at lenalidomide with rituximab in combination. There was a couple interesting papers on myeloma, one by Palumbo, looking at the PAD regimen as induction therapy prior to transplant myeloma. Yeah, so one of the challenges with myeloma, I think one of the exciting things is obviously we have all these effective new regimens and bortezomib, lenalidomide are at the top of the list. And I think historically we've treated patients with steroid-based treatment and then gone on to autologous stem cell transplant as kind of a consolidation. And more recently, the studies have largely been focused on 
A, can we get rid of transplant by using these new drugs, particularly if patients have a CR or a very good PR, by using either bortezomib or lenalidomide or thalidomide as part of the induction regimen. And patients, if they go into a CR, perhaps we can get rid of the stem cell transplant. The other approach, the more maximalist approach, particularly in patients who are transplant candidates, is to say, can we use these new drugs as part of the induction regimen prior to transplant? or during the transplant, or after the transplant as a maintenance. And so the Palumbo abstract that you mentioned, I think, is a very good example where it's essentially developed a multi-component treatment regimen where patients are treated up front with the PAD regimen, which is a combination of bortezomib, peg liposomal doxorubicin, and dexamethasone. So it's essentially using a novel upfront regimen. Then it uses an autotransplant portion focused on melphalan, and then a maintenance after the transplant with lenalidomide and prednisone. And so the idea here is really to try to incorporate novel agents up front, use the standard transplant backbone, and then use a maintenance following. And I think the results of this really, and it's a single-arm trial, but it's a multi-center Italian study, so you can only go so far in comparing, but they do make some historical comparisons and really suggest that this combination approach with the novel agents compared to the standard kind of VAD plus melphalan autotransplant suggests that there are progression-free and overall survival benefits to the incorporation of these novel drugs. So it's not a randomized trial, but it certainly suggests that for the more maximalist approach where you're still building on the transplant backbone, that using these novel drugs as part of the induction and as a maintenance or consolidation certainly can potentially provide some benefit. We need some more follow-up. The follow-up of this study was about a year, and so obviously it's early, but at least compared to some of the historical data suggests that there are some potential advantages here. I want to ask you about a paper by Alan List looking at MDS and specifically azazidinine. So this study really was a randomized trial in patients with a couple of subgroups of MDS where it was a randomized trial of azacitidine versus supportive care. And I think the goal of this study was to kind of amplify and build on the issue of CR. And is CR an important issue? Obviously, an AML, which is related but not the same thing as MDS, really a CR is requisite to having an improvement in long-term outcome. In MDS, with respect to new drugs, there was uh, interest, and in fact, some of the response criteria suggested that CR was an important endpoint and that really if you were going to improve overall survival, you probably needed to have an improvement in CR overall. And so what this study did in this report, which is really an extension of the prior report, is really look at not only the entire population where there was a clear overall survival benefit through the use of azacitidine versus supportive care, but to also look to see if the patients who did not go into a CR also seemed to benefit. And the bottom line here is that in patients who did not reach a CR, there still seemed to be a benefit to the patient. And so it suggests that you can improve the overall survival and improve outcomes for patient, even if you don't get the patient into a CR. And so I think that's, you know, obviously every patient doesn't go into a CR. And so the idea that you can still benefit patients, even if they don't go into a CR, suggests that this can be a useful agent, even in the absence of achieving a CR. And so I think it suggests that there's a, probably a broader population of patients that can benefit from the use of the drug. The last two papers I want to ask you about deal with the issue of CML, and the patients are either resistant or intolerant to imatinib. 
one by Morrow looking at the satinib, and another by Cantarjan looking at nilotinib. As someone who sees some CML patients but doesn't focus in the area, I look at the CML area as one that's rapidly evolving, and I'm sure many people are using in their practices imatinib, but there's certainly a large fraction of patients, a substantial fraction of patients that have disease that is either resistant to imatinib or they are intolerant to imatinib due to side effects. And so what we saw at ASCO were two studies, one focusing on desatinib and another focusing on nilotinib in this patient population. And I think the quick and dirty bottom line of these studies are that for most subsets of patients with this category, again, chronic phase CML in these studies that were either resistant or intolerant to imatinib, both desatinib and nilotinib have very high response rates and fairly good durable responses with patients at least one to two years, depending again on the study, most of the patients remaining and having good responses to the treatment. And so I think it's encouraging that in this patient population, we have drugs coming along that are active and effective and certainly good options for these patients. And obviously we need to, as we're all learning in the CML era, need to continue to follow patients in the long term on these new agents. But the fact that we now have at least a couple of years of follow-up from a couple of studies with these novel approaches suggest that this patient population can derive significant benefit that hopefully will be fairly durable for them.